Hello, I'm Peter Whittle. Welcome to So What You're Saying Is. Now, the American Psychology Association recently called traditional masculinity harmful. It seems that a day doesn't go past now when we don't hear this phrase toxic masculinity. It was only last month that the shaving firm Gillette put out an ad which caused a fair amount of controversy when it appeared to show men how not to behave. Now, at the same time, there are other things happening with men. First of all, boys are doing very badly at school. Men's mental health issues are on the rise. And indeed, suicide has now become the main cause of death for men under 50. Are these things related in some way? Are men and masculinity actually under some form of attack? Now, with me to discuss this is Martin Daubney. Martin is the go-to voice when it comes to men and boys issues now. He is the founder of the Men and Boys Coalition, but before that he was known as King of the Lads when he edited Loaded Magazine. He's an award-winning broadcaster and journalist. I'm thrilled to have him with us today. Welcome, Martin. What a splendid intro. Thank you. What is your reaction uh, when you hear the phrase, traditional masculinity is harmful? I find it extremely offensive and poisonous. Um, I'm the son of a coal miner. Um, I'm the first boy in my family that ever made it to university. I escaped a destiny of, of um, sort of servitude, if you like. My dad spent sort of 16 hours a day underground digging coal, and I thought that was what my life was, was going to be. And I was encouraged through, through male role models at school, teachers who had a belief in me, a father who had a belief in me despite the fact he was dyslexic and had been abandoned by the education system, like many boys today. Um, and I decided to, to strive forward. And, you know, that was a traditional patriarch, my male role model, doing that. Now, where's the bad in that? So I, I just think that the, 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 the war on the concept of masculinity by the media, by academia, and by the, the wider political establishment is a, is a gross dereliction of duty, which does men no favours. You know, you mentioned very serious issues at the beginning. Issues, sadly, such as male suicide, and the, the, the fact that boys are the bottom of education stack from reception to university, and at the very bottom of that are white working class lads. You know, people like myself, you know, of a generation before, and yet... There is very little political will to help them. Um, I've been in numerous committee room meetings. I've sat down just this close with yeah. politicians who paid great lip service. The Prime Minister Theresa May, um, in, in her first speech, pointed out the fact that, that male suicide is a serious issue and that white working class boys are at the bottom of the sack. Literally nothing has happened in all that time. Okay, but a small thing called Brexit in the way. But my point is, if we are able to identify need, if we are able to identify inequality, which we can provably through data such as education stats and, and male suicide stats, then, then why don't we do anything about that? And I think that's because we do have this, this broader concept that, that to be born male is to be born privileged, and in particular, to be born a white man means you've automatically won life's lottery. Yeah. As I look at the evidence, Donald Trump rules the world. There are more um, CEOs on the FTSE 100 called John than women. Now, this, this is all true. But there are also 93% of the, of the prison population are men. 85% of the homeless are men. Three quarters of suicides are men. It's like we could go on all day. But this is the problem, you see. We, we are forced into this kind of oppression Olympics 
I feel that we're, for the first time in, in human history, we, it's a race to the bottom to prove that we're the most oppressed, the most hardened by it. It becomes a competitive sport. Yeah. And there's a good reason for that, and that is if you can prove um, that people are suffering inequalities, then you can offer them protected status, which allows policy to be made. It allows the, the appropriation of funding to help yeah. disadvantaged groups. And men don't fall into that. The only men who are protected um, are by the dint of their skin colour, their religion or their sexuality. So we have a situation where politically white men have no allies and have no recourse to power despite the data showing us that actually they need help. And I think that's a terrible injustice. But do you think therefore, because you've sort of segued there and it's something that's occurred to me too, is this and when I say it is an attack on masculinity, is it actually more specifically an attack on, on white masculinity? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of that, you know, that Gillette ad, yeah. uh, which I mentioned in the, yeah. in the intro. That seemed to actually have that in it. I mean, yeah. I don't mean to be too paranoid about this, but it seemed to be mostly white guys who were doing the, the things that you shouldn't do. Is that yeah. right, do you think? Well, um, let's be absolutely honest. Um, in, particularly in the social media era where careers can end overnight, um, it's absolutely safe to say that, that white men are the, the last group left that it's safe to hate. Yeah. I mean, you absolutely can sort of hate white men, and it's almost seen a, a, as a virtue. You know, particularly by the liberal left now, it's, it's a badge of honour to support oppressed minorities. And to, to, that, to these people, the very notion that that's not the case, by showing them data, it, it kind of, they can't compute that. But you see, the odd thing about this, Martin, is that so you talked about your father there. My father was a manual worker too, yeah. you know, he was a driver. He You're was a, boy, right? That's right, exactly. Yeah. He, was a, he was a chauffeur. Um, and uh, his life... He and your father are, in, the, in their terms, they were more privileged yeah. than the Queen of England. Yeah. Because yeah. they were white males. Yeah, that's and right. And straight males. What was your attitude when you saw, which we'll probably see a bit of actually, mm. you, the Gillette ad, for example? What, what, what did you feel? I had a very visceral feeling. Oh, mm. God, no, not again. Well, um, I was invited onto the Piers Morgan show, Good Morning Britain, to talk about it. And my, my immediate reaction was, was one of, of repulsion, not by Piers, but by the advert. Uh, although <laughs> the jury's out on both. But um, quite simply, um, what I hate about all of this stuff, and, and I believe by the way it's the worst advertising campaign in my entire 25 years as a journalist. Wow. It was despicable. What it did was quite simply um, it took the worst actions of the worst men and somehow found this out to be the problem of every man. And if you're not actively doing something about this then you're a part of the problem. It didn't invite men to be a part of the solution it labelled all of us as part of the problem. And that's the trouble with identity politics. It forces us to take sides. Now, we can all agree that ending sexual violence, ending sexual harassment are things that are good. Yeah. Like, none of us want there to be sexual harassment or rape. But to, to have a bunch of, you know, white guys at a barbecue encouraging their sons to kind of beat other boys up, I've literally never seen that. No, no. I've got two kids I've, yeah. my entire life. It doesn't happen. And, and, and the whole notion that, that men are groping women in boardrooms, it's like, okay, well, I've spent many, many years in boardrooms, and I've ne I'm not saying it doesn't exist because I haven't seen it, but what I'm saying is, if you take the worst, most top 
toxic tropes of masculinity and making out that that's the whole morass of being a man, yeah. then you immediately, as we saw, you lose 90% of men. They hated that advert in the most visceral way I've ever seen. Do you actually know what's happened to that ad since? I mean, have they sort of withdrawn it? It's not been seen as a huge mistake or anything? No, so, so okay, so to be a conspiracy theorist for a moment, we could say um, that um, the Procter & Gamble stable, which is vastly products bought by women, because the, the, those who rallied around the advert, the, its supporters were media commentators, yeah. well, they kind of have to, because otherwise they'd be misogynists, um, and the creative industries, and particularly um, women. So they loved it, and they have to stand by their guns. They made a huge political statement to withdraw it would be an admission that they were wrong, and then they would incur the wrath of the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. So, so they, they had to stand by their guns. But the, the incidentally, I do, I do some work for, for Harry's, a shaving brand yeah. and they enjoyed a huge upsurge in trade without doing anything people just abandoned Gillette and I think the good with good reason I found myself actually in boots yeah. where going and looking and it was Gillette 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 yeah. and I was thinking I wanted to change make some kind of yeah. you did actually a report for Harry's okay. didn't you and and that, that has some really quite interesting uh, results about what is important to men can you just take us through that sure so so in 2017 I, I co-wrote with John Barry Who's, a, who's the founder of the Male Psychology Network uh, from University College London, um, the Harris Masculinity Report. And what we did there was the opposite of Gillette. So rather than taking the worst bits and making out that's a problem that needs to be fixed or men were broken and this, this had to be solved, we asked men what gave them contentment and well-being. And we found um, some really wholesome and, and quite beautiful things. Because guess what? Men take greatest well-being from providing for others, from having having fulfilling work, um, through having loving partners you know, of any sexuality. The more committed you are, the more happy men are. This is the opposite of what we hear, that men somehow enjoy being sexual predators and take fulfillment from that. We also found that British men were going through a renaissance of talking about their mental health, conversations that have been led by pioneers such as Prince Harry, you know, Prince William, Professor Green, the rapper, um, Harry Kane, sportsmen like that, who are being open about it's okay to talk, lads. And so our attitude was, listen to men, um, form a root map of the happiest men, and therefore say, look, this works for these guys, perhaps you should try it, which is the opposite, if you think about it, of what Gillette were doing. They're saying, here's the worst stuff, don't be like this, yeah, yeah. which men will never respond to because we're being hectored. I mean, you obviously, journalist, many, many years standing, editor, commentator. The Gillette ad is just one example. It's been a drip, drip, drip yeah. thing, hasn't it? My perception is, and it's not based on any data, is that just men are on the whole portrayed as being a bit dumb, a bit stupid. Would you say that's true in ads, particularly in ads? Yeah, so I remember I was part of the advisory committee of the Advertising Standards Association because they brought in new laws yeah. on, on stereotypes of gender tropes in advertising. Interestingly, um, what got all the headlines was the Beach Body Ready adverts. You know, Sadiq yeah, Khan yeah, famously yeah. wanted that ripped off the cheese because it body shamed women. Uh, and there was a huge storm about that advert at the time, but when you actually looked at what people were complaining about in adverts, as many people were complaining about the, the, the thick dad, you know, the crap dads yeah, who, yeah, who yeah. spoil Christmas by burning all the food, mm -hmm. uh, the, the guy who, who can't even make an, a washing machine work, despite the fact men invented the internet and the washing machine itself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, th those lazy tropes of men being 
bumbling buffoons. They, they got more complaints, and actually, a lot of the complaints were from women. Yes, yes. You're saying men aren't stupid like this, but nevertheless, it's, a, it's become safe pasture well, to mock you, men like that. You mentioned something about this before. You, know, you, you said you know, the, what is sorted behind it, but where would you say it really came from? Is it something, you know, because there is this, there is this view, you know, maybe people on the right say, oh, this is all down to, to, to feminism, right? This is like not liking men or the rest of it. Would you go along with that or not? Um, I think if we go downstream, so we need to understand how people with these opinions formed those opinions. Where did they learn this script? And I think we have to solely lie the blame in the, at the foot of academia. So if you go into any university now, you, you try and find a conservative professor, professor you try and find anybody who, who will even have... I think we've got one on the show soon, Good. actually. <laughs> Get more of them. You try and find an academic who will even put their hand up in a room who admits, admits to voting Brexit. Or you, you get an academic to say, hey, do you think Donald Trump might have some good ideas? The, the, these, these opinions are are suppressed on campus and um, patriarchy theory, you know, which is the, the theory that society is structured for the benefit of men and the impression of women and men are in control is, is a lie, but it's taught as a fact at, at, at all of our universities now without, without sort of exception. And so if you come through the, the ranks believing that, that women are oppressed and men are the oppressors, is it any wonder that when those people move into our media, particularly at the BBC, and, and they start looking for stories that highlight their own worldview. So we're continually zoning in on the gender pay gap, which anyone with half a brain knows is provably untrue if you compare actual like-for-like -like work. Yet, jumping on that theory to signal boost it to prove what they've been taught, therefore men are still oppressing, um, is the absolute meat and drink of, of, the, of the daily grind of the news cycle in the UK. I came out today and, and the, the emergence of the, the independence group is now being blamed on misogyny. It's, like they, yeah, they, it's not because they're anti-Brexit, which they obviously are, it's because they were bullied online and, and were forced out. It's like, you know, most abuse of politicians happens uh, towards men. Most misogyny online studies show is conducted by other women towards women, yet we don't get that, that version of, of the truth, the actual truth. We get the one-sided version. And so we are so immersed in this all the time that we believe it. And, and there's, there's powerful reasons that we do believe it. And it comes from, historically, um, we had to convince ourselves that men were disposable because they were often sent away to fight at wars and we re rewarded them with, with medals or the badge of heroism. They were disposable heroes we, and, and we had to, that helped us cope with, with that loss. And interestingly, last year, the, the 100th year of, 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 the, of uh, getting the votes universally, um, I, I often, every time I have a debate on television, I say, okay, so eight million women got the votes. And I say, how many men got the vote at that day? and I met with silence. It was five million. Five million men, working class men, like our fathers, you know, they wouldn't have been able to vote. You know, 700,000 men died in World War I, and the huge majority of those men would have never had the chance to vote in their lives. This is airbrushed out of history. It's all about the suffrage movement overcoming the evil patriarchy. In actual fact, 700,000 men who were conscripted without choice and died in the mud in the trenches, yeah. their voices mattered too. Yet we don't talk about them. It's, it's, a, it's a classic example of how we've become immune to male sufferance. 
and I think it's terrible. Do you, do you think your attitudes on these issues have they? How long have you been a journalist now? Twenty years. Twenty five years. Twenty five yeah. years. Have they kind of hardened? Have they evolved? since you started out absolutely yeah because you know back in the day you know when we were on the lads mags you know ladism lad culture which by the way is talked about on university campuses now with with more vitriol than than, than isis if you think i'm joking that the head of the nus you know wouldn't come out and condemn isis but has a lad culture program to deprogram men about drinking beer and singing rugby, rugby songs you know it's ridiculous um so back in those days this didn't really exist i mean there were always party poopers who hated what the lad movement stood for and, and serious arguments started to emerge about pornography and the relationship between the lads mags and pornography. Pornography became in around about 2013 um, the hot potato of our time, proof that men were becoming poisoned by porn and going out. You made a program about it? I did, I made a program called Porn on the Brain for Channel 4. We spent six months going around the world talking to every expert and we got 23 young lads who were watching serious amounts of porn they felt it was damaging their life chances and we got them help we put them in a brain scan study at Cambridge University but more than that we really got inside their lives and we understood that the true nature of this issue and it was not that these men were going out and becoming poisoned and, and committing crimes it was that they was ruining their lives it was stopping them working it was stopping them studying it was stopping them having healthy relationships and so it was much more nuanced than the media script we were getting. But like a lot of people that, that got involved in, in the men's issues movement, if you like, it was, it was because of personal loss. You know, I, I suffered the loss of friends who, who took their own lives um, too soon, you know. What do you mean, to related actually to the use of porn or? No, no, no. So I'm talking about per personal friends who, who committed suicide. Um, and then I, I became really aware of, of this new emergence of, uh, of male suicide data. And it sort of really profoundly moved me on a personal level to start getting involved in, in charity work and trying to find out if I could be a voice to do something about it. And that's when I started to run into resistance in, t in, in terms of government. So. When I launched the Men and Boys Coalition in, in, in 2017, Anne Coffey, actually, who's just defected to the independence group, yeah, she, she underwrote the, um, the, the, the meeting. That was because she, she'd had um, experience of um, boys being groomed as drug traffickers in her constituency in Stockport. So when we, when we got into Parliament and we were going, right, so, so here's all the evidence. Now, can we please have some action on this? That's when I started to realise that that politicians were kind of frozen in the headlights. And they, all, they were all saying behind closed doors, this is, this is really important, but we expect resistance. And, and we're like, what do you mean? How, how can you not help? The, we just laid out the evidence that, that these men are suffering, that they, they need help, and they need help. Um, and here's all of our expert opinion, which is showing they will benefit from a gendered approach, yeah. a male-specific solution to a male-specific problem, which would seem logical, right? Yes. But you sort of, you, uh, to go back to the, the porn bit again, yeah. your, your attitude to that did change, didn't it? I mean, uh, I think you've written about it saying that, you know, you really now distance yourself from what you maybe once thought about it. Yeah, so, so what happened? So that, that was a part of my personal journey where towards the end of my tenureship of the editor of Loaded, um, I started to look back 
Um, I became a father. Um, I left the magazine to become a stay-at-home dad. So I went from like alpha male to, to a vomit-covered buggy boy. You know, there's a real change. And I started to write about that and explore the changing way of being a man. And part of that, the major part, was looking back at the allegations I'd received um, that my magazine was a, was a part of this problem. Um, it, it was like a marijuana that was getting right. young lads into the heroin of, of misogynistic, body-punishing, rape, fantasy porn. Were my fingerprints on that? Because the, the even more serious allegation was that this was encouraging violence towards women, which is something that I've sort of seen at first hand within my family and deeply bothered me that I was being accused of being a part of this matrix. So I wanted to find out the truth. And I started to write about it, which led to making the TV show. And I spoke with sexual psychologists, criminologists who were treating some of the most serious sexual offenders in the UK, the addicts themselves, and always I would ask at the end of the filming, did they mention the lads mags? You know, was this a part of it? And they kind of laughed at me, they go, are you joking? And they're just going straight to hardcore porn on the internet now. So part of that journey was, was a kind of exorcism um, of, of, my, of my role. When I go into schools now, I've delivered talks on, on porn safeguarding to about 35,000 British teenagers over the last four years. And I always have a great sort of rapport with them because my, my slightly shady CV yeah, yeah. means they know I'm not like a vicar or a copper. Yeah, yeah. And so we can have, you know, constructive conversations where we can encourage people to be more thoughtful about their, their own consumption. So I do feel that I've, if I was a small part of the problem, then I'm, I'm helping to be a part of the solution now. Would you agree with the, there are more calls, aren't there now, for porn uh, to actually be, as it were, you, you can't get into it without ID yeah. or it's blocked and all yeah. the rest of it. Now anybody, we all know this, any kid can look at it on their phone. Yeah. So would you agree with that sort of prohibition? Um, no, because it won't work. So I was involved in, in that consultation as well with Baroness Joanna Shields, who was David Cameron's mm -hmm. internet safety minister all those years ago when, when Cameron wanted the um, internet service providers to make people opt in for porn. Yeah. One company did that, talk, talk, and they lost like 30% of their customers overnight because it's like, do you want porn? Um, I'll phone Sky. Our phone virgin. So we saw straight away that wasn't going to work. The latest raft of proposals is um, to uh, make any British consumer of porn, wherever it comes from in the world, if you consume it within the UK, you have to prove that you're over 18, either by a credit card number, well, what kind of idiot would give their credit card number to a pornographer, or a mobile phone number, because when you took that contract out, you had to prove yeah, your, yeah. and of course there are loads of ways around that, and you know, every time I go into schools and talk about this, the kids just sit there sniggering, because they know yeah. that within four seconds, they can get around these blocks, and one kid will share that with the entire school, but the parents and the politicians, meanwhile, think this problem's been dealt with, and it just hasn't. A far more sensible solution um, would be to do what our, our, our continental cousins do in Holland, where they start to have age-appropriate conversations about sexual conduct and intimacy from age six. And the results of that are the lowest teen pregnancies in, in the whole of Europe, the highest age of first sexual contact, because guess what? If you treat children like you know, mature, responsible individuals, they will go on to make mature, responsible decisions. But instead, we have this no sex please with British attitude, um, which is completely out of kilter with the internet era, and every child in Britain knows it's pointless. Why don't the politicians? 
When it comes to schools, because this is part of your campaign, is it? So the, the fact that boys are doing badly yeah. or not as well as girls at school, yeah. it's been going for some time now. Yes. Uh, again, you know, this is from an outside point of view. It seems to me that, for example, when it comes to the state school system, not the private one, yeah. but the state, uh, competition, for example, which is seen as a traditional masculine yeah. uh, trait, if you like, to be competitive, that has been downgraded, has mm. it not? Is that, am I way off beam there, or is that something you would recognise as being a problem? I mean, these are the things you're now campaigning over, aren't yeah. they? So, so when we look specifically at the challenges faced by boys in British education, um, the moment boys start to fall behind was the moment the GCSE um, went from exams to coursework. So um, boys typically perform better under pressure on exam day. Um, girls are more kind of attentive and studious throughout the year and do coursework so straight away. So since then, it's been about 21 years of straight data and the gender gap, by the way, is, is widening. Boys are falling behind every year for every socioeconomic um, background. So um, white boys and white girls, the boys do worse. Black boys, black girls, the boys do worse and so on and so forth. It's not an issue of poverty. Um, it's an issue of um, gender-related attitudes and how we teach and how we mark. So for example, when we look to um, schemes in America where they have um, attempted to recruit more role models, more, more male teachers, they've seen a great success in, in, in throughput because of course many of the most problematic boys in education are coming into school from problem backgrounds. Oftentimes they haven't had a father in their lives or a strong and positive male role model. So they move into a school system where now we have like 90% of the teaching community is, is, is women. Yeah, yeah. Um, back in my day, and you probably recall yourself, teachers were former army men. Yeah, yeah, no, and, yeah. And, you know, we, we can look back with misty <laughs> eyes about the clip around the ear, but we certainly knew where we stood. Yes, yeah. And if we didn't have a, a male role model at home, we could damn sure find one at school. And we knew where the barriers were, and, and we worked within those constraints. We were also allowed to compete at sport, you know, to run off the steam like a greyhound. You know, there was a report out yesterday saying children need more um, exercise they, at school. So 50% of schools have less than 55 minutes breaks per day. And we know from, from, from studies that boys in particular need to burn off energy. So when they go back into the classroom, they are ready to learn. Give them a breakfast in the morning. I went to a school in Milton Keynes where they uh, that's on a, on a sort of council estate where they've had incredible results with boys because they, they learned that getting lads from the community who who became teachers who were also football coaches wow you're great at football yeah now try some maths okay because they respect the guy there are lots of really clever things that are working but back to a previous point there seems to be little will to to enact them the thing is you see you, you, it seems to me you are dealing with the consequences yeah. of all of this you're trying to make that better right but ultimately it comes back doesn't it to you talked about the academic world and how it's all flowed through from that, the attitude mm. to men. Yeah. How do we deal with that? I know we're just about to wrap up, but how the hell do you deal with that? I mean, the source, as it were. How are we going to change that culture? It's a huge problem, and make no mistake, um, a very well-armed you know, machine 
doesn't want that to change. Um, what we, the only thing we can do is make evidence-based, compassionate pleas. Um, and you know, I'm hoping after Brexit is, 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 is dealt with, we might be able to go back to looking at some more specific policies. If we could just get, you know, someone like Harry Kane, I interviewed Harry Kane a couple of days ago. You know, Harry Kane is, is somebody who's talking about his mental health, who's talking about you know, how he, he, he fought back from adversity. He was dropped by Arsenal when he was eight. His father put his arm around him, beautiful, closed in, protected ranks, and, and he went on to be, you know, he's now the, the world's most valuable, second most valuable footballer. It was about adversity and bouncing back and having positive, supportive role models around you. And that's what our boys so desperately need. Yeah. Now that can come in many ways. It can come in people who go into schools and talk. It can come from celebrities, from footballers. It can come from fathers, uncles. But empowering men to be a part of that solution rather than, as we said earlier with Gillette, treating men as some toxic, endemic part of the problem, that's the starting point. Until we have empathy, for boys and men and their issues, we've got no chance. Right, perfect way to stop it, actually, Martin. Thank you very, very much for coming in and all the very best with your campaign and the Men and Boys Coalition. Fantastic you're doing that. Uh, that's it for, uh, so what you're saying is this week, do subscribe. There is a little logo I'm told is here, <laughs> which you can just uh, click on and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.